If you have your Bibles there, Acts chapter number 8 is where we're going to continue uh, this morning as we continue in worship now with studying the Word together. Why do we go through uh, a time like this each year when we have a missions emphasis and we focus on missions? What is the purpose of that? I want to share with you for just two to three minutes on why we do this, and then we'll get uh, into the message. We're going to actually go back to Acts 1 verse 8 and look at a very famous missions passage as well, but Acts 8 is where we're going to be. Uh, Go ahead and take out your worship guide if you'd like to follow along and take some notes. Hope that this will bless you today. But why do we have a missions month? every year at Fairview. Well, I think, first of all, it's important and healthy for us as believers to remind ourselves of God's call and commission to the church, that the primary uh, uh, reality of the church is that we we are called to be a lighthouse and not a spiritual country club. Um, The goal of the church is to advance the kingdom of God. The goal of the church is to see the church grow. Uh, uh, like on the first day of Pentecost or, or, or the first day the church was born, 3,000 souls were saved and added to the church. And so I think that Missions Month at, at, at church is a great time for us to remind ourselves that it's not all about us. It's not about building our own little Christian bubble of people who've been saved for 15, 20, or 30 years, although that's wonderful to have that those brothers and sisters who have known Christ that long because they're able to help new believers be discipled. But ultimately, we're to be a lighthouse. We're a rescue station. We are giving the good news of the finished work of Christ that you just heard Scott sing about. That no matter what you've done in your life, no matter where you've been, no matter who you are, there is forgiveness and new life found at the foot of the cross in the empty tomb of the resurrection. And so, uh, Missions Month is just a great time to challenge ourselves to keep the right perspective on what church should be. It isn't a country club. It's a lighthouse, and we are to speak out and show forth Christ's love to those in need. Number two, I think the reason we have this every year is to reacquaint ourselves with our missions partners. How many of you did not know that we support right now 30 missionaries? (laughs) It's, It's good to be reminded of that, and it's good to know that we have partnerships with 30 different missionaries around the world and around the country who are doing a great work. And so it's important for us to reacquaint ourselves with our missions partners regionally and globally to keep before us those that we are supporting through prayer and financial support. Um, Number three, the reason that we have this every year is to reaffirm our commitment to be on mission as a church through our prayer, through our giving, and through our going. And so what does it mean to be a missional church? You're going to hear that phrase a lot today in the message because you see Philip, a deacon, who became known as Philip the Evangelist over in Acts 21, verse 8. That's the other time that Philip's name is mentioned after Acts 8. He's now known as Philip the Evangelist. And so it's interesting that Philip was one of the original deacons that was called out in Acts uh, 6. And then he went out preaching the gospel. Philip was living on mission. He was missional in his philosophy and in his focus. And so it's important for us to realize what it means to be a missions-minded church. It's not just about giving financially to 30 missions partners across the world, although that's very helpful and needful. It's also about realizing our personal responsibility to take the gospel here locally. Um, I think another great thing for us to do each year through Missions Month is to reevaluate how we're doing in our missions program and where we're currently focused. Uh, This year, we've uh, intentionally focused on our stateside church planting throughout this month. We've looked at two missions partners, one that we currently support and one that we're praying about supporting as they plant churches here in America. 
And of course, again, just to recast the vision of missions here as a church. And so on this last Sunday of August, as we get into the fall, I wanted to preach a message uh, to wrap up this missions month and really challenge us to think about this simple truth. And it's this, missions is not something the church does. Missions is something the church is. That's so important to keep that distinction because sometimes missions gets viewed as this separate program that the church does. But if there's anything that you forget or don't catch the rest of the message, if you just remember this thought and take this with you and really live it out, that's going to change the culture of our church. It's going to change the, the, uh, the world that, in which we live locally. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says this, "Ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Now good news, the Holy Ghost has come upon the church. The Holy Ghost has, has fallen. Uh, he, 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 he came on the day of Pentecost to the church. And now when we receive Christ, we get the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit empowers us to do what? To be witnesses of Jesus both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and into the uttermost part of the earth. I love these uh, areas that Jesus lays out here of where we're to be witnesses. Jerusalem, missions is local. Missions is across the street. Missions is to your neighbor. And, and, and when missions isn't just something that you do, but missions is something that you are, and you see your vocation, you see your recreation, you see your family, you see your neighbors, you see all these different relationships. In fact, we have five different kinds of relationships in our life, at least. We have familial, we have, we have familial relationships, we have geographical relationships, we have commercial relationships, we have vocational relationships, and we have recreational relationships. What would it look like? Like if in each one of those categories of relationships in our life, we were to identify one person that we were going to pray for, that we were going to serve, that we were going to invite to different biblical opportunities and events to share the gospel, to give them gospel-centered literature, to speak the gospel to them, how would, how would that change the church? If we viewed our Jerusalem in, in, in that local field in that way, to identify five intentional relationships, one in each one of those areas, familial, geographical, commercial, vocational, recreational, and intentionally seek to be on mission in those relationships. And so the scope of mission starts local in your Jerusalem, in your city. Then it, it, then it expands to regional in Judea and Samaria, in your county or in your co country. Uh, Samaria was the other side of the tracks for the Jew. And, and it was so cool when the gospel really got in people's hearts, they were willing to go anywhere and everywhere for the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You don't see anything else, but you see souls now. You see souls who are in need. You look past all the other things that our society tries to get us sidetracked on, and you see the souls of people. And so wherever, whether they live in Jerusalem or Samaria, which was on the other side of the tracks for the Jew, or the uttermost part of the earth, the Gentiles, it's the gospel that matters. And so the scope of mission starts locally, and then it's regional, and then it's global to the uttermost parts of the earth. And what we're going to see here in this passage today, it's so cool, what we're going to see in this passage today is really a culmination already of Acts 1-8 and how Philip started in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 6 as a deacon. Then he goes to Samaria in Acts chapter 8 verse 1, and he's preaching the gospel to villages in Samaria. 
And now the Spirit's going to lead him in our story today to literally the desert. In fact, look at verse 26. It's where every aspiring preacher wants to go. It says at the end of verse 26, the Spirit said, arise and go and get down to a place which is the desert. And so we're going to talk about the desert today and how God does some of the most unforgettable works through the most unlikely of people in the desert. So let's read this passage of scripture, shall we? Acts chapter 8, verse 25 through 40, as we think about missions and what God has called us to. Acts chapter 8, verse 25, and they, when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, returned to Jerusalem and preached the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Now, who are they? Well, Philip, we know, is one of these people who were preaching. And also there were some other missionaries that had joined up with Philip. Peter specifically, and, and a couple of other apostles as well. And so they had joined up with, with Philip, and they were preaching the gospel here in the villages of the Samaritans. Now, for us, when we see the villages of the Samaritans, again, we think, okay, the village of, 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 of the Samaritans. But again, for the Jew, this was the other side of the tracks. The Samaritans were not full Jews. They were half Jew. They were, they were Jew and Gentile. And so the Samaritans were always uh, viewed as lower class people. And so there was a lot of cultural uh, hostility. The, 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 there's a lot of ethnic barriers that, that were there in the first century. Sounds familiar, sounds familiar today, doesn't it? There's so much uh, unrest between different people groups of the world and ethnicities. And so for Philip, who was a Jew, and for Peter, who was a Jew, to go to the Samaritans, this is what you see. You see the gospel breaking down barriers of ethnic divide. You see the gospel. Why? Because God doesn't see the outward appearance of man. He sees the heart of man. He sees our need. And so it's every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue which will stand before the throne of the Lamb and say, worthy is our God to receive power and glory. It's the promise of Abraham given thousands of years ago that in thee all nations of the earth will be blessed. What a missions passage. And so here, Philip's already, you can see that this is a man already passionate about the gospel. He looked past the ethnic divide with the Samaritans, and he loved these people that, that, that he would go and live with them and serve with them and preach the gospel to them. Verse 26, and the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. Now, we're going to talk here in a little bit about the excuses that Philip could have given. I mean, think about it. Philip was a Jew. He had already served as a deacon in Acts chapter 6, and he had helped to uh, solve a fight that was starting to arise in the church there between the fully native Jews and the pilgrim Jews that had come back on the day of Pentecost, and there was this issue with the widows not getting cared for. And so Philip had ministered there in Jerusalem. Then he was obeying the great commission and the call of the gospel to take the gospel to the other side of the tracks to people who their been this ethnic uh, struggle with between Jews and Samaritans. And now God says, go into the desert. You have to wonder in Philip's mind, okay, God, where are you sending me? Let's keep reading. And he arose and went. You don't see Philip arguing. You just see Philip obeying. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a man of Ethiopia, this was a Gentile, someone who was not a Jew, by birth, by blood, this was a Gentile, a man of Ethiopia. Let's find out about this Ethiopian. Number one, he was a eunuch. I'm not sure if you know what a eunuch is, but a eunuch was someone who had been 
uh, uh, castrated uh, at some point in his life, either by choice or by birth. There was a birth defect, and so he was unable to obviously have children. Uh, many times these, these eunuchs would actually voluntarily choose to do that because of their position of promise, prominence in the kingdom in which they were serving. And so this Ethiopian was a eunuch of great authority. So this man was very powerful. He was very influential under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure. So this man was influential. This man was affluent. He was very rich. He was, he was the, basically the treasure for all of the kingdom of Ethiopia. And Ethiopia back then wasn't just the little country that it is today. It was basically the entire region south of Egypt. Um, uh, a, a very huge swath of the continent of Africa was where Ethiopia was. And this Ethiopian eunuch served Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. And it says that he had come to Jerusalem for to worship. Now, this is fascinating to me. This man who was influential, he was rich, he had great prominence. Basically, you could say this guy had it made. He had everything that most people search for in life but yet he was searching for someone, something else. He was searching for God. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. Now, this is very interesting because, number one, he's an Ethiopian, so, so, so he's a Gentile. And number two, he's, he's a eunuch. And in the Jewish religion, Gentiles could only go so far in the temple area. I'm going to show you an inscription later that was discovered not too many years ago that was written on the wall that separated the court of the Gentiles from the actual temple complex where Jews could go. And so this guy had gone seeking for God in Jerusalem. And you have to imagine when he got there, number one, first strike, he's a eunuch, or excuse me, he's an Ethiopian. So that's the first strike. So he can only go so far to get near to God. Number two, he's a eunuch. If you write down this verse, I'm not going to read it now. Deuteronomy 23, verse 1. Trust me, it'll bless your life if you read it later. De Deuteronomy 23, verse 1. Not only, was he an Ethiop uh, not only was he an Ethiopian, he was a Gentile, but he was a eunuch. Which meant that because of his choice, whether it was a choice or whether it was by birth, because of his Deformity, would you say, he could not enter in and he could never be a fully uh, uh, committed Jew, even if he wanted to convert. That religion, the Jewish religion, could only allow a Gentile to go so far, and certainly a eunuch could never go beyond that wall. Keep that in mind as we study this passage today. Because it's so important. And so this Ethiopian was returning from Jerusalem. He was going back to Ethiopia. He had come searching for God. And clearly he was rich because look at verse 28. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and he read Isaiah the prophet. Now if you had a book back then, if you had a scroll back then, you were rich. And so this guy clearly had money. Maybe he had purchased this Isaiah scroll while he was in Jerusalem. And here's what's fascinating about why he was reading Isaiah. I've always wondered, why was he reading Isaiah? Because if you write down Isaiah 56, in fact, we quote this passage later on in the uh, outline today. You'll see that. Isaiah 56, verses 3 and 5. It talks about foreigners. And, 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 and it says in this passage, and I'm not going to read it right now, but somehow in Isaiah 56, there's hope given to a eunuch. It's basically a prophecy. Because in Deuteronomy 23.1, eunuchs could never enter in into the temple. But somehow in Isaiah 56, there's this idea of hope. It says that, that uh, eunuchs 
who hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. So this eunuch's probably reading that and thinking, okay, now I just went to the temple and I couldn't enter in because I'm an Ethiopian, I'm a Gentile, and I'm a eunuch. And now I'm reading Isaiah 56 and it seems like somehow I'm going to be brought in. How's that possible? And so if you can imagine with me, somehow the Spirit, as he's reading that Isaiah scroll, directs him back a few chapters to Isaiah 53. And Isaiah 53 is one of the most powerful Old Testament passages written 700 years before the time of Jesus. And it tells about who Jesus was and what he would do for his people. And so the Spirit, knowing that the Ethiopian eunuch was reading this passage in Isaiah 53, look at verse 29, the Spirit said unto Philip, go near, join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran. Oh, I love that. Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you read? Sometimes we make witnessing to our friends and family and neighbors and coworkers hard. Sometimes the greatest witness we can be is just asking the right question and allowing the Spirit to work. And so he, he asked the Ethiopian, do you understand what you're reading? Because in those days, up until the 5th century A.D., people read aloud. Uh, silent reading wasn't a, when it wasn't a thing like it is today. And so Philip heard this Ethiopian reading the Isaiah scroll in Isaiah 53, and he said, do you understand what you read? Look at verse 31. This is the cry for why we need to be engaged in missions. He said, how can I understand except some man should guide me? This is the cry of the world. There are people searching for God. You see this Ethiopian. He was affluent. He was influential. He had a lot in life, but he was still searching for something. And maybe you're like this Ethiopian today, and you come into this room, and you're searching for this and that, and, 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 and yet there's still something. There's a haze. There, there, there's a hole that you know is not being fulfilled, and, is, and there's a disconnect. And, and so this Ethiopian was searching, and he says, I don't understand how can I understand except a man should guide me? And so this Ethiopian desired that Philip would come up into his chariot and sit with him. Oh, what an opportunity, right? You can imagine Philip's excitement, probably still a little nervous. Verse 32, and the place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shearer, so he opened not his mouth. That's describing Jesus and his crucifixion where he did not rail back accusations and threats against the people that were beating him to a pulp, but he simply said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus would be crucified, is prophesying who Jesus would be and what he would do. Verse 33, in his humiliation, his judgment was taken away and who shall declare his generation for his life is taken from the earth. And so, getting this, this picture that the Spirit leads Philip to the desert, and he just happens to run into this Ethiopian eunuch who just happened to be reading Isaiah 53, describing who Jesus was and what he did, and now Philip gets the opportunity. Look at verse 34. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this? Who's Isaiah talking about, Philip? 
Is he talking about himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture, Isaiah 53, and preached unto him Jesus. 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 And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. There just happened to be water along the way too, in a desert. <laughs> and he said, see, here's water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Baptism in that day was pretty much like a public, perfection, uh, a public profession of faith today. It, it was serious. This man was serious about trusting Christ as his Savior. He wasn't putting faith in the water to cleanse him of his sins. The blood of Jesus was going to do that. But baptism was this outward manifestation of the inward change and desire of the heart. It would be like today if the Lord is working in your heart to trust Jesus as your Savior. Um, it would be like you today responding by walking back to one of these back three doors and talking to someone like Philip who would take the scriptures and show you how you can trust Christ as your Savior. And so they went on their way, and he said, what does hinder me to be baptized? And you have to think in the Ethiopian's mind, wait, Philip, is something still going to hinder me? I went all the way to Jerusalem, and, the, and I couldn't get beyond the wall of division between the court of the Gentiles and the temple of the Jews. Something hindered me from getting near to God there. Philip, I'm a eunuch. Does that hinder me? Look at verse 37. And Philip said, if you believe with all of your heart, that's it. Do you see what the gospel is? It's nothing more than faith. It's not adding on all these extra lists of man-made religion to try to earn God's favor and keep his acceptance. It's simple faith in the finished work of Yeshua, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. If thou believest with all thine heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still. They both went down into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip. <laughs> he literally transported. You're like, how is that possible? It's a miracle. We here at Fairview believe in the supernatural, in the miraculous. We're living in, in the midst of the greatest miracle. God's speaking the universe into existence out of nothing. And so he was caught away, and the eunuch saw him no more. And the eunuch went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. What a powerful story. One that I don't even have time to dig into all the wonderful details of. But let me just give you three things quickly that made Philip successful in carrying out the Great Commission and why this story is here for us today and what it says to us. First of all, write this down. Missions, what made Philip successful in carrying out the Great Commission, the mission work that God had called him to, was that he had a love-centered motivation. He had a love-centered motivation. And you get that. When, when he starts out as a deacon, he's loving on the widows there. He's serving the, the, the Jews that weren't technically fully native Jews. I mean, they were fully native Jews by blood, but they had lived away in the, in the dispersion of the nation of the people of Israel from the Babylonian captivity. And these people had come back on the day of Pentecost. And Philip was loving the Grecian widows. He was loving on them. 
And then Philip was loving on the Samaritans and giving to them the gospel. He was loving on the half-breed Jews by blood. And so he was loving on them. And now Philip's loving on an Ethiopian eunuch. You sense as you study the life of Philip that Philip had the love of Christ as his motivation. It started in serving tables in Acts 6, and now it continues by serving dignitaries in Acts chapter 8. Philip loves the widows, and he loves the eunuchs, and everywhere in between. He loved the Samaritans and their villages as well. He reflects the heart of God as a servant. Philip was a true deacon. He was a servant. He served anyone and everyone. No one was marked off his serving list. He served. Philip didn't just care for crowds either. Yes, he was in the villages of, of, of Samaria preaching to crowds, but he also cared about the one. He cared about the individuals. And if we're going to serve with a missional mindset, with a mission's heart, it's going to be because we are motivated by the love of Christ. The love of Christ constrains us to give the most important news to our friends, to our family, to our neighbors, to our coworkers, to those that we live and go in life with. And so... Philip wasn't like Jonah, who was the reluctant prophet in the Old Testament. No, Philip was the rejoicing evangelist, as he's identified in Acts 21, verse 8. He wanted those in Jerusalem, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth to receive what he had received. And so we see how the gospel here in the early chapters of Acts, if there's anything that will heal the divides with, with different people groups today and everything that's going on in our news today and in our culture, study Acts chapters 1 through 8 because you see how the gospel is our only hope in the midst of a broken society where somehow people get it in their thinking that they're better than another person based on where they were born or, or what color their skin is or, or what nationality they are. Do you see how the gospel was shattering the barriers? It shattered the barrows between the Grecian and Hebrew widows. It shattered the barriers, barriers between the Jews and the Samaritans. And it was shattering the walls and the barriers between Jew and Gentile. This is a missions-minded deacon. And folks, that's what a missions-minded church looks like. How do we grow in our love for people, in a genuine love for people? It's the gospel. When you finally see how unlovable you were because you and I were sinners, we were, we were born broken and alienated from God. We were strangers from the covenants of promise. We had no hope. And when you see that God yet in that state, as unlovable as we were, we weren't seeking after God. We didn't care about the things of God. Yet he loved us in that he sent his son to die for us. When you finally realize God's love for you and you let it overwhelm you, then it helps you to love others. And then what God does is he arranges divine appointments in our life to show that love. And what happens is, is then we see people as not problems in our way, but opportunities on our way. We'll see them for what they are, and we won't miss out on those opportunities because we're looking at our own selfish ambitions and desires. So... If we're going to be missional like Philip was, then we've got to have a love-centered motivation, nothing else. And that's love without strings attached. Listen, if you're a guest here today, we're not loving you so that you'll become a giving unit in our church. That's not why we do it. If you never come back, we hope you get the good news of the gospel and that alone. It's not about building our little kingdom. It's about advancing his kingdom. And that's what Philip was passionate about. He loved people. And so the application is that we would love people with a God-centered love. 
It's not about building an organization. It's not about building a budget. It's not about building a name for ourselves. It's about magnifying his name. A love-centered motivation. Number two, we see this in Philip. We see that he had a love-centered motivation. But we see, number two, that he had a spirit-led mission. He had a spirit-led mission. Look at verse 26 again. It says, The angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Get up and go. I changed the word arise to get up. It's just my way I understand it. Get up and go. Arise and go. And go to a place which is in the desert. Now, here's what's neat about the whole book of Acts. It's really a study about the outworking of the Holy Spirit. And so, in Acts 1, verse 8, we see that the Spirit is going to empower the apostles and the church to be witnesses and to go in all these places that we've covered. And, and, and the point is that, that the Spirit would empower them to do so. And so, men were chosen in Acts 6, Philip of which, of, of which was one, that were full of the Holy Spirit, Acts 6, verse 3. Then Philip is led by the Spirit to this Ethiopian eunuch in the desert. And what I want you to notice is, is that what's interesting is if you go back to Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, you don't find necessarily a voice of the angel of the Lord, but you find Philip following what he knew to be right, what he knew to be the Great Commission. So Philip was already uh, following God in his word with what he knew that God had already said. And then in rare instances, there's about 18 times in the book of Acts where this happens, where there's literally a voice from God or a voice from an angel or a voice of the Spirit that says, go here. What's the, what's the application? Uh, sometimes we're sitting around wait, waiting for this mysterious voice to lead us somewhere. But the question we need to be asking ourselves is, are we already in Samaria? Are we already following what we know to be right? You see, if we get a voice from heaven or, 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 or some com- confirming sign, the question is, is would we go? God could entrust the call to Philip because he knew Philip would go. And so he goes to the desert. Now, this is interesting, the desert. You ever feel like you're in a desert? Sometimes God calls us to the most unlikely and unremarkable places so that we can experience his undeniable and unforgettable power. What's a desert? A desert's a barren place. A desert's an unimpressive place. A desert's a dry place. A desert's a lonely place. But yet, it's the right place for Philip to be. And sometimes you can feel like you're going through a desert season in your life. But have you ever thought that that might be the right place for you to be, even if it's for just one individual? That's it. Philip was on a sniper, soul-saving mission to see one individual confronted with the truth of the gospel. And then he was gone. So the Spirit led Philip. If we are going to be like Philip, if we're going to be on mission, we must be led by the Spirit. God often sends the most unlikely people to the most unexpected places to experience his unforgettable power. And there is no doubt Philip experienced that because he was obedient to the Spirit. He allowed the Spirit to lead in his life. Now, Philip could have offered up several excuses, right? I mean, he's already in Samaria. I mean, he's already gone to a place he's not comfortable, you know? The other side of the tracks, Pastor, you know? I mean, mean, he's ministering to half-ethnic breed Jews, right? I mean, this, again, this was serious in the first century, and we can see how this 
Isn't it funny, 2,000 years later, we still have the same issues in our cultures? And so he could have offered up several excuses. Write, write these down real quick. They're, they're, they're simple. Not now. Hey, God, a lot of great things are happening in Samaria. A lot of people are getting saved. God, did you not see about all these people that were getting saved in the, in the villages of Samaria here in the first 24 verses? God, this isn't the right time. Not now. Hmm. How many of us have ever been guilty of that? <laughs> not now, God. God, I just got into a comfortable job with a 401k. I got my retirement planned out in the next seven years. Not now, God. Or I'm new on the job. If I start praying for my lunch and people see that, or if I start talking about Jesus in, in, in that uh, work conference room, in, in that conversation, not now, God. This isn't the right time. But, but have you ever sensed the Spirit's leading and you took the opportunity, you're like, oh, I'm glad I obeyed in that moment and didn't put it off. So Philip could have said, not now. The second excuse he could have given God in, in, in God seeking to lead him, the Spirit seeking to lead him, is not me. God, send someone else. Send, send one of those, uh, uh, send, send a Samaritan to reach the Gentile. You know, they're halfway to being a Gentile. You know, send the, Gen, uh, send the Samaritan to reach the Gentile. And so Philip could have said, not, not me. I'm, I'm not the right person or I don't want to. Send someone else. I'm not an apostle. I mean, I mean, he could have even sounded humble in this excuse. He could have said, God, I'm just a lowly deacon. I'm not one of the big 12 apostles that actually lived with you, ate with you, saw your resurrection. I'm just a deacon. And that could have sounded so humble. But it would have been an excuse. Not me. I wonder how many times we tell the Lord, not me, because we look at our own inadequacies rather than his power being used in and through us. Another excuse Philip could have offered in this mission is he could have said, not there. Not the desert. There's nobody in the desert. God, I'm in the villages of Samaria. Not there. <laughs> Certainly not there. Anywhere but... You know, fill in the blank of a place you wouldn't want to go. Lawrence County. I'm just kidding, Lawrence County people. We love you. That's not the desert. But anywhere but there, God. So he could have said, not now, not me, not there. But I remind all of us, God's ways are not our ways. God does lead us to people and places because that is the way God works. I think back 10 years ago to when God called me back to Decatur, Alabama. It, it wasn't necessarily not there, but I just didn't really have it on the front of my radar that I would ever come back to my hometown that I grew up in. Of course, 10 years with history behind me now, I see, wow, how much God was in that and how much God was leading when I didn't even realize it. You know the same thing. You can look back on your life and you can see how that one seemingly insignificant decision or encounter changed the entire course of your life. For some, you encountered a person, an opportunity, a book, but ultimately it led you to encounter the God who is working in the midst of those circumstances. So not now, not me, not there. Philip could have easily created these excuses, but he didn't. And you know what a missional church needs? It needs this. A missional church is made up of Philip's. What's a Philip? Ordinary people being led by an extraordinary God to do kingdom work. 
Will you decide, if you're a brother or sister in Christ today, if you're a believer in Jesus, will you decide to be a Philip? Will you decide to be motivated by a love for God and a love for others, a love-centered motivation? Will you allow the Spirit of God to lead your life, both through what you already know to be the Spirit's leading through His Word and then through those genuine, unique circumstances when God clearly speaks in your life, will you obey? Philip did, and we get to read the story of his encounter with an incredible person, this Ethiopian eunuch. Finally, we see what made Philip effective, and that is this. He had a Jesus-focused message. Lead people to Jesus from the Scriptures. The eunuch is reading Isaiah 53, and we know clearly that's talking about Christ but the eunuch was trying his best to understand it, and he couldn't understand it. He needed someone to explain the scriptures. You know, in that thought, I thought about this. Some people are all about being led by the Spirit, but they never open the scriptures. Then some open the scriptures, but they live as if the Spirit doesn't exist. But what you see with Philip is he had both. He had the Spirit working in his life, and he allowed that Spirit to lead, even though sometimes he didn't understand it, but it was also anchored to truth and to the Scriptures. And so he explains and he preaches unto this man, Jesus. Look at verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same Scripture and preached unto him, Jesus. If you look back at verses 4 and 5, it says this, Therefore they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the Word, and in verse 5 it says, And they preached Christ unto them. They went everywhere preaching the word. They preached Christ to them. It's in the preaching of the written word that the Spirit then takes that word and gives revelation of the living word, Jesus Christ. He is the Logos. Notice what Philip didn't do, just to point out the obvious here. Philip did not start into some lengthy explanation on why Gentiles were you know, not liked by the Jews and certainly a eunuch, you know. He, he didn't talk about all the other cultural issues of his day. He didn't get distracted by all the hot-button topics politically, ethnically, even morally, because morality would not save this Ethiopian. Only the, regenerate, only the regenerating work of the Spirit of God and the salvation of Jesus would save this Ethiopian. So Philip didn't get into some lengthy discussion about politics, Ethnic, uh, uh, ethnic wars, um, all this other stuff, he preached Jesus. He preached Jesus. And I think what we have to confront in our mission's efforts is this. Are we offering and presenting to souls in our mission work just another man-made system of religion, or are we offering to them the God-man, the Savior of the world, who desires a genuine, life-transforming relationship with them? Philip preached unto him Jesus. And what a challenge that if we're going to be missional, that we learn and, and begin to understand. But it doesn't take that much. Notice that Philip's presentation wasn't all that eloquent. He simply started with a question and then he took that scripture that the Ethiopian eunuch was reading and he said, this is talking about Jesus. Let me show you how it is. And, and he pointed out, I'm sure, several different things. You see, all the Ethiopian eunuch 
had tried was religion. Here's an inscription that I told you about earlier that was on that wall, that middle wall of partition between the court of the Gentiles and the, and the Jewish people. Here's what that inscription said. Are you ready? It's not inviting. We wouldn't put this over the door of our church this morning. Here's what this inscription said. No foreigner may enter within the balustrade around the sanctuary and the enclosure. Whoever is caught on himself shall be, shall be put blame for the death which will ensue. So Philip didn't take the Ethiopian eunuch deeper into the Jewish religion. He brought him in by the Spirit's power into a life-transforming relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's what missions is all about. Preaching and teaching Jesus. This Ethiopian had the scroll of Isaiah. He was affluent. He was influential. But he was still empty because he was seeking someone greater. And so Philip offered him the only one who could fix the problem. The only one who could fix the distance. It says in Ephesians, turn there with me quickly and we'll be done today. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. The Bible says this in verses 8 and 9. It says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Keep reading. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Wherefore, remember that ye, being in time past Gentiles, like that Ethiopian eunuch, a Gentile, in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision, by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh, made by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That was the Ethiopian eunuch under the Jewish religion. He could never get near to God. Number one, because of his birth. Number two, because of his birth defect or chosen deformity. But look at verse 13 of Ephesians 2. But now, in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes far off are made near by the blood of Christ. What Christ did upon the cross. For he is our peace. Look at the text. For he is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. That middle wall where the inscription was written that said any foreigner that enters beyond here will be killed, that wall was broken down. This is the heart of missions. A love-centered motivation, a spirit-led mission, and a Jesus-focused message. You know what Philip decided? Buckets are great for holding stuff. How many of you like this bucket? I love it. Let's do this. This is great for holding stuff, but, but Philip decided that he wasn't going to be just a bucket. You know, he decided he wasn't just going to let the truth and the good news of God be poured into his life. He wasn't just going to receive, although receiving is an important step. It's, it's the first step. He wasn't just going to receive and, and just be a bucket. 
Philip decided that with his life, rather than being a bucket, he was going to be a funnel. And he was going to let the truth of God not stay in his life and become stagnant, but that he was going to let God's truth be poured through him into other people's lives. He was going to love people enough to tell them about the truth. He was going to love people enough to preach unto them Jesus. He was going to love people enough to allow the Spirit to lead him where he should go, even if it's to the desert, which doesn't make sense, and reach just one individual, which he probably didn't think he would be going there that day. He decided to be a funnel. And so if you're a Christian today, you've got a choice. You can either continue to decide to be a bucket, or you can decide with your life that you're going to be a funnel and allow God's truth to be poured through you to other people. So which one are you today? Are you Philip? Are you a believer in Christ? Do you see the example that Philip sets before us? Do you see what God's calling us to do as believers to be on mission? How do we be as effective as Philip was? Love-centered motivation, spirit-led mission, Jesus-focused message. And so today, if you know Christ is your Savior, God's calling you to look at the life of Philip and say, wow, I want to be as effective as he was. I want to be on mission. But I can't help but ask this morning, I'm going to ask Rebecca to come and prepare to play a song of invitation. I want to ask you this question. Maybe you're not in that category of believers in Christ, you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, maybe you're a lot like this Ethiopian eunuch. Maybe you're, um, maybe you've got a lot of things going for you. Maybe you don't have a lot of things going, going for you. So, sometimes if you have a lot going for you, it, it's harder to see your need. But I'm thankful that this guy, even though he had a lot, he had position, he had power, he had authority, he had possessions, he still was missing something. And so he was searching. And so perhaps you're in that group today and you come into this place today and you're searching. I give to you Jesus because that's all I have to offer to you. And he's all that you need. And when you get him, you find out that he's all that you've ever really wanted. What did Jesus do for you? He loved you so much that he came to this earth. He lived 33 years. He lived through every major season of life, just like you have. He lived without sin, which is hard for us to understand because there's not a day or a moment that goes by that we're not tempted with sin or, or committing sin. But Jesus lived a perfect sinless life so that then he could become your perfect stand-in and your substitute and represent you on the cross and die for your sins. He did that because he loves you. He did that because he wants a relationship with you. He offers to you his infinite grace. And he says, it's a gift. There's no strings attached to this. It truly is an unconditional gift that I'm offering to you. And it is really what you've been searching for your entire life. And by simple faith in me, trusting in what I did for you on the cross, you can be forgiven of all of your sin and you can begin a new life in me. So with that, I'm gonna ask your heads to be bowed and your eyes to be closed for just a moment. 